Chapter 20, Part 1 of Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, in October 2020. Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie, Chapter 20, Part 1, General Reflections. This chapter starts with a quotation. The plain truth is that educated Englishmen are slowly learning that the American Republic affords the best example of a conservative democracy, and now that England is becoming democratic, respectable Englishmen are beginning to consider whether the Constitution of the United States may not afford means by which, under new democratic forms, may be preserved the political conservatism dear and habitual to the governing classes of England. End quote by Dicey. Politics are not the incessant theme in the Republic which they are in the monarchy. This difference has its rise in two causes. First, no party in America desires a change in any of the fundamental laws. If asked what important law I should change, I must perforce say, none. The laws are perfect. These being settled as desired by all, it follows that a vital question can arise but seldom. The outs are left to insist that they could and would administer existing laws better or more purely than the ins. A politician may safely be challenged to state wherein the Democratic and Republican parties of today differ. If one of the outs, he will say that the ins, having had control too long, have become corrupt, and that as a new broom sweeps clean, a change is desirable. But ask him which, if any, of the national laws or forms he would change, and he is dumb. Second, the nation having by universal suffrage and equal districts committed to certain men the management of affairs for a short term, public sentiment says, let them have their innings, and let us see how they succeed. We shall soon judge them by their fruits. They cannot be put out till their terms expire, therefore there is no sense in our becoming excited over politics until the time comes for an election. The party in opposition cannot be stirred to action when it is impossible for it to obtain power. Therefore, the political excitement which always exists in Britain breaks out in the Republic only once every four years. One hears more political discussion at a dinner in London than during the whole season in New York or Washington. It is often charged that politics in the Republic are generally in the hands of men of position and character inferior to those of similar position in Britain. This is quite true. Until the final form of her political institutions is reached in Britain, the important work to be done will attract able men. When the Civil War in America revealed the need for able men, America's best came forward and met the need. A notable change took place in the men who went to Washington. In the usual routine of national life in America, the only political work to be done is such as young, briefless lawyers and unsuccessful men of affairs can easily perform. They have to follow public opinion and are mere agents. When great issues no longer divide the British people, the same result may be expected. 
able men not influenced by personal vanity and desirous of leading lives of the greatest possible usefulness will be unable to persuade themselves that attention to the administration of laws already fixed is the highest field and will leave it to those of inferior nature or of less experience and ability the highest ability and purest character though lost to politics will not however be lost to the nation but really constitute in a fuller sense more vital parts of it and enrich it more than they do now when the final settlement of laws which is still to be made by the democracy absorbs so much of their precious time the difference between the house of commons and its offshoot in washington which is productive of the most far-reaching effects but which has hitherto received but little public attention in britain is the payment of its members this difference is fundamental pay members and the people are then properly represented parliament is then the people's house Refuse to pay members, and Parliament is primarily the house of the rich, and but imperfectly represents the masses. It is because this is the case that both liberal and conservative are found deprecating the payment of members, for it is still true that triumphing Tories and despairing Whigs forget their feuds to save their wigs. There are too many members of Parliament, both liberal and conservative, who owe their places to the fact that they can live without work to render any change easy. No other reason can be assigned against their payment, because members of the Cabinet and other great officers of state are paid, as in America. Why should a Cabinet minister receive a compensation and a member none? It will hardly be contended that an ordinary member of Parliament would be disgraced or his tone lowered by accepting remuneration for his services, as do Mr. Gladstone and the Marquis of Salisbury. When the day arrives in which poor but eminently capable men can enter public life in Britain, there will be little left of aristocratic institutions. Until they can do so, even the House of Commons is the House of the Rich, as the House of Lords is the House of the Landlords. The people are represented by neither. In the Republic, as we have seen, every man serving the state is moderately compensated. But mark also this, no man is compelled to take it. Everyone is free to serve the state gratuitously, if he so desire. The immense advantage resulting from the periodical election of officials is that they are less influenced by every passing wind of popular frenzy. They will more readily adopt a policy which their superior knowledge tells them will eventually produce good results, although at the moment excited popular opinion may be in opposition. They at least are firm and are able to steer steadily. They do not lose their official heads until their term of service ends. The ministers and members of Parliament in Great Britain are like so many agile performers on the tightrope. No one knows the moment they may fall, nor worst of all the cause which may throw them. The nation kept in a state of unhealthy suspense from day to day cannot unreservedly do its best work, because all eyes are turned to these performers. There is every morning the chance of a grand spill, and no one wants to miss it. The fatal defect of the British Constitution, since the power of the throne has gone, is a weak executive liable to be swept along by any gust of opinion. 
it cannot await the return of sober reason for the calm and settled conclusion of the people it is the second and not the first will of the people which is the voice of god as a consequence the members of the government do not hesitate to plead that they are not to be held responsible for such and such acts because public opinion demanded them as if they had not been designated by the people expressly to withstand popular excitement and to do not what was popular but what was best regardless of clamor such an excuse would be held in the republic to disgrace a government the influence of this condition of affairs upon the politicians of britain is bad in every respect they are tempted to sacrifice so much in order to retain place that instead of producing a body of men whose first and last thought is for principle the tendency is to produce men who are pliable to a degree and ready to adopt any measures necessary to maintain their own party in power we lately saw the conservative party passing liberal measures rather than resign office and a short time ago we saw the liberal party adopting tory policy in the sudan simply because they were afraid that if they did not they might lose office the most adroit and must we say it least scrupulous party managers and not the truest statesmen are the likeliest to receive and to retain power in these days when much is said against the dangers of democracy de tocqueville's wise saying should be remembered extreme democracy prevents the dangers of democracy not only is the republic with its fixed terms of office its supreme court and two chambers with real power a much more conservative form of government than the monarchy since the power passed from the aristocratic few into the masses but the people themselves have become under republican institutions a much more conservative people in their political institutions than their progenitors conservative in the sense that they desire no change the national constitution illustrates this since its adoption in seventeen eighty seven it has only been twice amended and for many years there has not been one word added or erased and the recent amendments made have resulted solely from new questions created by the overthrow of slavery on no other point has a word been changed on the other hand the british constitution has been so tampered with from time to time as to become almost unrecognizable as its former self well may tennyson write i honor him by omitting my lord quote, as to any vital changes in our constitutions i could wish that some of our prominent politicians who look to america as their ideal might borrow from her an equivalent to that conservatively restrictive provision under the fifth article of her constitution i believe that it would be a great safeguard to our own in these days of ignorant and reckless theorists End quote theories of the power of the people obtain in britain which are unthought of in america such an act as the recent irish land bill which took from the owners of property the right to let it in open market and enjoy the resulting revenues would not find a party to advocate it much less a house of representatives to entertain it and even if passed by both houses and approved by the president the supreme court would be bound to make it void for a change of the constitution would be necessary to render such an act legitimate 
property 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 has been the cry of the owning and governing classes of the monarchy yet the sacred rights of property are today much more securely guarded by the democracy of the republic than they can possibly be in the monarchy the capitalist and property owner is more secure in the enjoyment of his property in the new than in the old country in land for instance he has most citizens sustaining him in his right for the millions own the soil in small parcels property in land stands and always has stood upon the same footing as any other kind of property therefore land proprietorship has not been rendered odious by unfair advantages conferred upon it its sale is free and it is taxed upon its value as other property is it can be taken at a valuation for railways or other public purposes there is neither primogeniture nor entail the free play of the law of dispersion has been found quite sufficient to prevent the troubles which afflict britain in its management of the soil when land is free and subject only to the general laws regarding property its owners will rest in peaceful possession but never till then the cable informs us that in mr gladstone's plan for home rule special means are to be taken to prevent unjust laws being enacted by the majority in ireland against the landlords and even so philosophic a man as my friend mr morley is said to second the idea with all due respect to these great men i beg to point out that no surer means of making landlords more odious if possible than at present ever entered the human brain it betrays a positive lack of knowledge of human nature give exceptional security or protection or privilege to any class and it becomes at once a target for the bitter hostility of all other classes should unusual guarantees be provided i venture to predict that instead of healing existing sores these measures will become the seeds of graver ills to follow only what is equal rests in repose and produces good fruit there cannot be repose i e equilibrium without equality of the parts we see the question of a graduated income tax coming to the front in the monarchy the republic had this when immense sums were required to meet the cost of the civil war but one of the first taxes abandoned at the close of the struggle was the income tax it was not reduced or made uniform it was abolished nor has there ever been a movement to reimpose it the masses favored its abolition although it was paid by the few for all incomes below two thousand dollars four hundred pounds per annum were exempt i know of no temptation ever placed before a democracy to put the burden of the state upon the shoulders of the few rich citizens as was contained in the suggestion not to inaugurate a new but only to resist the repeal of this existing tax they approved its repeal because it was shown that although theoretically the justice of all modes of taxation in practice the honest citizen paid it and the dishonest escaped and that to enforce its honest collection a thorough system of espionage and minute examination would be required not in harmony with the spirit of free institutions the republican is jealous to a degree of the presence of a government official armed with power to trouble him about anything
since the republic adopted the civil service reform it can no longer be charged that at every change of administration the petty officials lose their places which never was the case to the extent popularly believed in britain for the staff were necessarily retained i know of no remaining charge against the democracy except international copyright and the alleged corruption of local politics as before explained the outs must accuse the ins of corruption since the policy of the one party is that of the other there is rarely any other reason for a change to be alleged but as matthew arnold very justly observes charges of personal corruption in america take the place of personal abuse in britain salisbury being a liar and gladstone a madman as these gentlemen are held to be respectively by their most violent opponents the question arises if american officials politicians i should say for the officers of the courts and the army and navy are beyond suspicion if these be venal where are those who have made fortunes by politics? I have known many hundreds of public men, but scarcely ever one who was not actually poor. When the tenure of office is short, and the chance is great that one of the opposite party will succeed and overhaul all accounts, malfeasance in office must be rare. So it is. Very few defalcations occur. In the case of legislators who may be bribed to vote for measures, it is to be noted that but little private bill legislation is known. A general railway law in the states, and general laws by which questions are decided, leave but little room for personal aggrandizement. By this means, legislation throughout the country is kept substantially pure. Comparing the national legislature at Washington with the British Parliament, I am persuaded that at least as many votes are given from other considerations than those of honest conviction in the latter as in the former. True, the bribe is not the same in both cases. Pecuniary considerations have less weight in the older land. But there is no radical difference whether members' votes are obtained by expected social rank or favor or expected pecuniary gain. A longed-for title, even so poor a one as that of a baronet, is not less a bribe than so many dollars. The nature reached by the dollar may be the lower man of the two, but he is at least not quite so silly. There is more sense in dollars than in titles, patents of nobility at which the judicious laugh behind the wearer's back, whispering to each other, pity the weakness of a poor old man. Viewed thus broadly, there is as much corruption in politics in the mother as in the child land, only its form varies to suit the taste of its victims. End of chapter 20, part 1, General Reflections.